Hi there, and welcome to the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. My name is Patrick Francie, and I'm the CEO of the Real Estate Investment Network. In addition to being a business owner, I'm also a real estate investor, I'm a coach, I'm a husband, I'm a very proud grandfather. And along with that, I'm also committed to stretching beyond what I've already achieved and of living a fulfilled life by continuing to make a positive difference in the world. I invite you to join me to listen in on the Everyday Millionaire podcast as I interview and have conversations with seemingly ordinary individuals who have achieved some pretty extraordinary results, whether it be in their life, in their business, in real estate. And it's here where I'm going to delve into the details of their journey, along with the paths they've traveled to get where they are today, and as importantly, where they intend to go in the future. My guests are here to inspire. They're here to help you learn by talking about what's real for them, both in their wins and in their challenges, from the life and the lifestyle they live to the person they had to become along the way in creating and building their financial futures for themselves and their families. Before I begin this episode, I'll start by first thanking you for listening in and for your support and the feedback you provide us on the show, as well as to ask you to please continue to send your comments, your suggestions, or your questions directly to me at CEO at RainCanada.com. That is CEO at R-E-I-N-Canada.com. And if you're inclined, please share this podcast with your friends or your family and with people you know, or perhaps even people you don't know. Rate the show and comment on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or whatever platform you happen to use to listen in. And while you're at it, please follow me on the Everyday Millionaire Facebook page. So thanks again for the feedback you provide us. It's definitely appreciated. Okay, let's get on with this show and have a conversation with today's guest. My guest today, Jonathan Chevro, is a veteran financial columnist, blogger, and author based in Toronto. He was the Financial Post's personal finance columnist between 1993 and 2012, as well as the editor-in-chief for Money Sense magazine from 2012 to 2014. Since declaring his own Independence Day, aka Financial Independence Day, in May 2014, he has columnized for the Financial Post, Globe and Mail, Money Sense, .ca and Motley Fool Canada, as well as his own website, The Financial Independence Hub. He published his financial novel, Independence Day in Canada in 2008, and U.S. editions of Independence Day in the United States in 2013. John has also authored several books, including The Wealthy Boomer and several editions of Smart Funds. He has a large Twitter following at John Chevro and uses lots and most other major social media platforms. He is rated as one of the top two social media influencers in finance in Canada. So without any further delay, let's get this show rolling. Jonathan Chevro, welcome to the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. So great to have you on the show. I haven't talked to you, haven't seen you for a long time. So thanks for joining me. My pleasure, Patrick. So, Jonathan, let's kick it off for the viewers. I mean, gosh, you're a legend, you know, in the space of financial understanding and financial education, uh, especially, you know, you're a well-written or a a uh, multi-book author. But let's talk about today, you know, this many years later since I've seen you, if somebody says, Jonathan, what are you doing these days? Uh, What's your answer to that question? 
Well, you know, I led it in my own mind to the old joke, but uh, (laughs) I would consider myself semi-retired or the word I've tried to coin, independent, financially Mm -hmm. independent. So, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I'm 68, so I don't know whether that's good or not. Uh, I I think I declared my independence day about seven years ago. Mm -hmm. We discussed what exactly that means, but it was, in my terms, it was having left full-time employment, which at the time was... 19 years at Financial Post, followed by a couple of years as the editor of Money Sense magazine. And uh, since then, uh, mostly I've been writing for Money Sense and uh, and running this financial independence uh, website, uh, which has daily content, 52 weeks a year, five times a week at least. So yeah. uh, is that retired? I guess it's not quite retired. <laughs> well, it depends on how you, I guess, it depends on how you frame uh, retirement. You know, I I joke and uh, in all seriousness, you know, I'm on the Freedom 95 plan, which to me is only saying that money aside, I don't ever intend to stop doing what I do and what I love to do and what fires me up. And right now what fires me up is education and supporting uh, people in creating and uh, wealth and a financial future investing in real estate and not just real estate, by the way, because I know we want to talk about that. At least I do. There's different ways to create that wealth and create that financial future. And uh, that's what we want to talk about. But let's go back a little bit. And, you know, where I want to enter the conversation with you is that, yes, you wrote the book, Financial Independence. Fin-depe- no, you called it Findependence. Findependence Day. Yeah. Findependence Day. The day, the day you reach, reach financial independence. Yeah. So great. So we're going to talk about that. But let's go back a little bit. Uh, you've been 20 years with the Globe and with Money Sense for many years. But what got you? Uh, I, I was at the Globe for four years in the 80s as a tech reporter, but it was 19 years at Financial Post. Oh, got it. The, Financial Post. Got it. So, yeah. so yeah. tell me, though, but what got you on the path of even doing this? You know, was it education? What got you on the path of saying, you know, something, I want to be that writer. I want to be that individual that opens the door and opens the conversation to teaching people about finance. Yeah, money was secondary. Originally, I was actually, as I said, I was I went to the University of Western Ontario Journalism School mm-hmm. in 1979. Incidentally, Malcolm Muggeridge, the British journalist and author, was the writer in residence, and I got to know him a bit. And uh, but from there, uh, I ended up. In, on the computer beat, and uh, after a couple of years of the tra- in the trade press, the Globe and Mail hired me in 1981 to be their high-tech reporter. So even now, I still, you know, you look at my own personal portfolio, there's a lot of tech stocks, and I was in there really early. So I guess I got, it's the whole financial life cycle that is described in Independence Day. So, you know, you get married, you have a kid, you buy a house, sure. you, uh, you have a mortgage, you pay off the mortgage, and now it's sort of like, one of these days, I'm going to have to retire, and uh, I better start saving and investing. So what happened was um, I left the Globe. I was still the high-tech reporter, and I was freelance for five or four or five years, which is how I ended up. I went freelance again when I reached my Independence Day. At some point, uh, oh, I know what happened. I got married and got a mortgage, and all of a sudden, I figured I needed a real job, could uh. no longer be freelance. This was in uh, 89 that I got married, still married to the, the person. Person who uh, who set up the headphones today? Fantastic! Uh, Thirty-two years, and uh, so got a real job by re-entering journalism, full-time staff reporter at the Financial Post. Originally high tech again, but mm-hmm. soon enough, I discovered um, mutual funds, 
both as an investor and, and the mutual fund reporter had left. So I said to the editor, it was a weekly column. I said, oh, I know about mutual funds. And so I ended up writing five mutual fund guides. One, they were called smart funds, an annual guide from Key Porter at the National Post. And then I sort of evolved and took over the personal finance beat from Bruce Cohen, who was a, a legendary personal finance columnist, still is, but he's definitely retired. So I, I was sort of a gradual process from moving my beat from from tech to money. And then from there, you know, other books, The Wealthy Boomer, The Wealthy Boomer website, which was a bit like what I'm doing now, the Financial Independence website, with a lot of sort of interactive debates and discussions, very public discussions with various Canadian financial authors. Even today on the Findependence Hub, there's a little Couturier, I guess, a little clique of financial bloggers like Dale Roberts at Cut the Crap Investing, Mark Seed, my own advisor, Rob Engine at Boomer Neckel, and a few others, uh, Michael James, James uh, Michael James on Money. And we sort of trade content back and promote each other. And, and, and whenever we get into a topic, usually on Twitter, uh, we'll have these 10 or 12 person kind of at Michael James, at Cut the Crap Investing, at John Chevro. But we're discussing, and, and you, you would probably look at them as financial literacy. I mean, there's a big, long discussion quite recently on the Purpose Longevity Fund, which if you watch the Stanley Cup playoffs, may the Habs rest in peace. I'm very sad about that. <laughs> Sorry about that. Uh, but you would see that the, uh, the the Purpose Longevity ads, the ads there on the hockey games were, were, were quite good. So mm-hmm. long answer to a, a short question. Well, but it's always part of it, right? You know, we start to look at someone's journey to achieving, you know, the results they've achieved. You know, you uh, started out humble beginnings like most and uh, you've come a long way. I mean, you're, uh, you've written several books. Uh, you've uh, really taken the lead in a lot of ways in terms of supporting the education of people around finance, uh, finance and, and financial independence at some point, understanding what that even means. Because there's a lot of there's a lot of ignorance in that space. People just don't or, or not. They, either they don't know, uh, they don't know where to look, or they're not interested, or they don't even know to be interested. But it is a quite, I've always found it quite surprising how uneducated people are in the world of finance and uh, how much they just kind of leave it to chance or don't approach it. That's my experience. And, and maybe I'm talking out of school. You have a far more experience at it than I do. What's your view of that, Jonathan? Well, I think that you and I are to some extent in the same racket, if I could use that word. Sure. Honestly, I I, I am very familiar with Rain Real Estate Investment yeah. Network because, as you know, my daughter worked for them <laughs> yeah. for a while, and uh, and one of my regrets actually is I didn't take to heart what you guys were talking. <laughs> I mean, let's face it, you, you, this podcast called the Everyday Millionaire. Well, as far as I can see, anybody who listened to anything, if you bought even a door or two of property <laughs> yeah. above, above and beyond your principal residence, anywhere five years to 50, 15 years ago, which is mm-hmm. when Helen worked for you. Yeah. I mean, heck, with interest rates so low, the, the price of pre- I mean, I would think every member of yours that took, even decided to buy one property would be a, an everyday millionaire, would they not? You tell me. Well, sure. I mean, if you did it right, then you, uh, in, if you followed the system, if you invested for cash flow, if you kind of followed the program of what we taught and didn't get off track, uh, you've done well in most regions. But let's go back to that a little bit. It's an interesting conversation, Jonathan, is that real estate was not your game. Uh, you did very, very well in your stock market and whatever you might have done in mutual funds, et cetera. 
But you, you kind of listened to Rain. You knew what was going on. You were part of the, the kind of the narrative that the Real Estate Investment Network has had over the years. What stopped you from buying that one door or those two doors? What was what was going on? I'm just curious, uh, you know, psychologically, what was this? What was the block? I, I didn't have the guts. Ah, interesting. <laughs> I didn't. I, I, honestly, I was like, oh, my gosh, this huge mortgage. It was bad enough because we because I say the foundation of financial independence is a paid for home. It's easy to make the case for buying a principal residence. Sure. And so when you retire, you want to be debt free. So my wife and I, we paid off that when we heard that our one hundred and seventy thousand dollar mortgage back in 88, 89 mm-hmm. was they were going to they were going to basically take twenty four thousand dollars a year of interest and only pay down the principal yeah. by a thousand dollars. Once I learned that, it was like, we got to pay that on that sucker. <laughs> so once you become debt averse, it's yeah. like, oh, to, to do what Rain suggested, I'd have to go into debt. Now, yeah. it, it's even sadder, Patrick, because even before Rain, am I pronouncing it right? Yeah. Uh, even before them, I had taken the um, the Hume the Hume real estate course. Remember the little red uh, monthly things I paid. I remember paying five hundred dollars oh, yeah, and yeah, yeah. Subs- sub- subscribing to it. And I understood the principle and why I yeah. should do it. But again, I didn't have the guts, and or even the capital. Mm-hmm. And uh, in fact, I still. But it's always an excuse. So in my case, uh, I said to my wife, I said, Ruth, I said, I think I'm ready to invest. So where where did I, where did you put where did she does all the filing? Where did you put those? Um, uh, what did I say it was? <laughs> Hume. Those Hume letters. Yeah. Oh, I threw them out. <laughs> and, and now, yeah. now, I'm, so my excuse to her says, if Helen and my and Ruth say, why didn't we get one of those doors? Why didn't we invest in real estate after we paid for our houses? Well, you threw out my, my, my Hume <laughs> Oh, it's her fault. Nice work, Jonathan. <laughs> but, you know, somebody but, else but having said that, so when you look at, you know, where you sit today, you know, you paid $170,000 for your house. And I don't know where you live. I know in GTA, I think somewhere. But the point. Long Branch, by the lake. By the lake. It's beautiful. There, there you go. So, you know, uh, just think of the gain that you've had on that house. It's a tax-free gain. And uh, at some point, should you want to pull some cash off the table, you can. And or if you want to sell and scale down, whatever it might be, there's there's certainly a lot of uh, equity sitting there for you. I, I guess the thing about investing in, and what's interesting about this is the, you know, the fear that comes up even for somebody like you, because I mean, we face that with the rain community all the time, members of the rain community, some of them are, they get it, they get the math, they get the system, they understand the contextually. And so they're able to move forward quite quickly. Others uh, really take some time to bust through that that hurdle of fear. And uh, and it takes some just longer than others to do. And some actually don't ever get past it, although they're they're kind of sitting on the edge. They don't ever bust through that that moment of fear to get that first door under their belt. And what's interesting about this right now is that when we talk about interest rates, you know, to your point, back when you were buying a home or even when I was buying a home, I think my first mortgage was at 12 and a half percent when I Yeah, we were 11 and 3 quarters. Yeah. <laughs> so so imagine, you know, to your point, I mean, gosh, you you know, the first year you you bought down the mortgage a thousand bucks, it was like, "Oh my gosh, I was on that page too. Is we got to get this sucker paid off." But you imagine today, I was just reading um, Rate Hub, and there's all sorts of conditions to it. So don't think for a moment I'm suggesting that anybody run over to Rate Hub and figure out where to get this mortgage. But there are mortgages out there for less than 1%, 0.98%. So imagine what that means on a million dollar mortgage. You're paying, what, 10 grand or something of interest on a million dollar mortgage. Now, it's all conditional, and, you know, that's, you know, that's, kind of like clickbait. But the point is this, is that 
when you've got inflation at a minimum of 2% and likely more around the 3.5% and you've got property prices inflating the way they've been inflating uh, over the past 18 months, it's a good use of your money. As a financial guy, you get that, right? Uh, yeah, I get it. <laughs> What's interesting is if you compare back to when we first bought our principal residences sure. before you got your doors. This exact polar opposite. Back then, if you look back and go, oh, those houses were two or three hundred grand, and now they're all, you know, we got million dollar starter homes over yeah. here in Long Branch. Sure. Um, so they have, you have these huge, very expensive houses today, but tiny little interest rates, whereas it was the reverse for us back in the 80s. It was very cheap real estate. It didn't seem so at the time, but yeah. looking back, wow, they were cheap. Mm -hmm. And uh, But the interest rates were, we, we paid around 12%, but I had friends who were at 19% at one point. Right. So complete opposite. Uh, and going back to my personal regrets, I mean, Helen, my daughter, I remember we were very close. She was going to Guelph for a year, yeah. universities. And we were like, we should really buy a place yeah. rather than rent. And we went and we actually looked a little bit, but again, we didn't do it. We didn't have the guts. Then she went to Hong Kong. I was like, forget it. Now yeah. she wants, she and maybe her boyfriend want to come back to Canada. And all of a sudden they want to come, you know, want to buy into the world's most expensive uh, real yeah. estate market or so it seems. But, but even sadder too was our first house was in New Toronto. That house that I mentioned, we sold it not much more seven years later than we paid for it. We lost money. We're the only people in Toronto real estate, I think we lost money from 1988 to 1996. In retrospect, we should have just bought the house in Long Branch and kept that old house on 7th Street, which would have been, today I look at it and say, oh, Helen, she wants that house. And it would be, you know, instead of paying a million dollars, it would have been 200000 But, yeah. you know, regrets. I've had a few. We all have them. <laughs> we all have them. Now, so, so tell me something, uh, you know, around all of this, though, Jonathan. I mean, you've followed your plan. Uh, at the end of the day, you followed your plan uh, the way you followed it. Uh, you've got a home that, of course, you know, like many boomers, uh, you've got a lot of equity sitting in that home. We talk about the wealth transfer that's happening in this country and around the world, but let's just say North America, and the wealth transfer uh, is significant. Is significant. Uh, boomer parents coming to boomers, and then, of course, boomers going to their millennial children in, in many cases. But this is all to say this. I mean, you've done well. You're you're okay. You hit your uh, you hit your fin into your fin dependence day, sixty one ish years old. Um, that's not so bad. You're you're happy with where you're at. Oh yeah, I, I mean, sure. I, I'm as I said. I mean, part of my reason for not going for the doors was I was tremendously risk averse. Yeah. Sorry, yeah, I, I debt averse, averse to debt. But to me, debt and risk were sort of similar. Yeah. I, I just don't like the idea of uh, of owing. And I remember with a financial planner I worked with for a while, he looked at our balance sheet and says, so, so you have this and this and this and assets. And he says, and you don't owe a dime to anybody. And we go, no, don't want to own a dime to anybody. <laughs> <laughs> so that's great. So let's go back a little bit further. Uh, you know, I always am interested in hearing a little bit of your story you know, this financial journey that you began and, and, and then really, was it a financial education journey or was it a writing journey? You know, when, you know, the fact that you were writing, you were writing for the Globe and Financial Post and then, you know, uh, Money Sense. Uh, was that really your journey being a writer or was your journey the education of people around finance or how, did, you know, or maybe both, I guess. But I'm sure you didn't grow up. You might have grown up thinking I want to be a writer one day or I want to write a book. I want to write several books, which is what you've done. What is it for you? 
Well, yeah, I can tell you an answer to that one. Uh, first of all, we'd have to talk about Ernest Hemingway, who, mm -hmm. as you know, used to work at Toronto Star, became a world-famous novelist. And in uh, The Sun Also Rises, which I just happened to be listening to the other day on an audio book, there was a line there where he said, basically, most print journalists, newspaper reporters, they really want to be creative writers. They always want to be write the next, you know, the great American novel if they're American, the great Canadian novel. I was no different. I, I, I looked at it as if I could become financially independent, then I could quit being a staff reporter for the Post or the Globe. Yeah. And then all those beautiful eight-hour days that they were taking, I could devote to writing the great Canadian novel, right? Mm -hmm. That was in my, in my mind, I think. So I had to be debt-free. I had to have a certain amount of assets so that you're basically earning money while you sleep. And then you could create these literary masterpieces. In fact, Independence Day, if I sent you an interview with myself that was on, on July 1st, Canada Day. I, I did an interview with myself, which was a trick I learned from Malcolm Muggeridge, who I mentioned I'd, I'd met at Western. And that was, that was, Independence Day was actually what I would call a quote-unquote real novel with plot characterized. I mean, I could turn this camera around and show you a, a bunch of books here about how to plot and setting and characterization, all the techniques of, uh, of, of, of novel writing. And in fact, I have a few other friends who are independent now, and indeed, they also have written novels. In wow. most cases, we end up self-publishing because it's pretty hard yeah. to get through the gatekeepers to be, you know, to compete with Stephen King and you know yeah. all these other guys that are there. Uh, so that was that was that was really what my motivation was. I, I thought I wanted to be a, a creative writer, and I needed uh, financial security before I thought I could even start. Well, tell me just quickly. Let's go back as a young man growing up. Siblings, family. Tell me a little bit about your parents. Were they entrepreneurial? Were they? Did they have jobs? Where did? Because there's a part of it where you know to be a writer, to consider writing a novel. Uh, there, there's some independence in that. There's some entrepreneurial spirit in that. But where did you start your writing journey? And uh, you know that got you to here. Was that nature or nurture? I guess is the question I like to ask. Was that something that you, your parents supported you around? How did that show up? Yeah, a bit of both, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, my my parents were British, so after after they um, they won the war, they came to Canada in the early fifties. And yeah. of course, my dad. I was joking with uh, Elliot, my my uh, possibly. Uh, partner from my of uh, Helen yeah. uh, about hockey and soccer and say how he was a soccer fan my father and then when he came to Canada they said oh we don't they don't have soccer here so he was the Montreal Canadiens hockey in the yeah. 50s of yeah, course yeah, yeah. I naturally became a Habs fan because of that I was Reason born a Habs sick. fan sure. But then my father also, he was in the British Navy, but when he came to Canada, he started all over, all over as a farm laborer mm. and then uh, put himself through teacher's college. And as long and short of it, he became an English and a French teacher. And he too, he was reading, I mean, I remember Hemingway's yeah. books in my father's library. I know he wrote at least one novel attempt that he never got anywhere. So I probably had that idea of, 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 of how to write from that. Mm -hmm. The fact that very few people actually become the next Hemingway Way is another different topic. I, in fact, I, what I've noticed is there's, there's, there's a huge market of would-be novelists, and there's even a couple of books about them. Uh, what's it called? The Plot. It's a very interesting story where an, a failed writer becomes an English teacher and then rips off the manuscript of a, of a, of a student who dies, and it's, it's so interesting. Didn't they make a movie about that? A similar movie was The Wife. Oh, I think that's, of yeah. The Wife. Okay. 
similar plot, yeah, though. Yeah. yeah. So, but the point is that this huge self-publishing industry where yeah. they, they they just make money from authors. So right. It's, it's, anyway, that's a whole separate conversation. Sure. So tell me something. Uh, you know, you got on the you know the journey of of writing about tech to begin with, and given the timing of that what drew you to tech? Because that would mean that you're kind of a forward thinker, you're an early adopter, perhaps. What was interesting to you about tech? And as you said earlier, that, you know, your portfolio consists of a number of different tech stocks. So where where did that interest, where, what did you pick up on in the world of tech? Oh, okay. That Yeah, that's a good question. And, and the answer is, um, I studied science. I didn't study history and, and geography and all that stuff, because I thought I wanted to be a doctor. I didn't, but I thought I did. So I studied all the sciences. So when I came to journalism school, I felt like I didn't know as much about history and world events as people who study political science and history. Mm -hmm. So I naturally gravitated to science and technology as a beat. And science, you know, for whatever reason, that was the early days of, of, of personal computing. And in fact, I interviewed Steve Jobs and Bill Gates and wow. all these people back back in the day. Wow. I did buy some Microsoft stock and Apple stock, but not early enough that <laughs> uh, that in itself would have created the kind of wealth that would qualify me for even to be on this show. <laughs> so not, apart from the regretting not having get bought, bought doors the way Rain teaches it, yeah. I also regretted not having backed up the truck with the first day I saw Windows. <laughs> for, uh, Oh, we all have those stories, my friend. <laughs> oh, for sure, yeah. Actually, I did buy Apple, but I, I sold it soon after, a year later, after the went just just after the iPod and before the iPhone. So mm -hmm. that alone would be yeah. that would have been something. Yeah. So that was why I sort of I I I also realized you know, as a journalist, I had a, a teacher, Shirley Scharzer, actually, the late Shirley Scharzer, who went to the Globe, and she said, you know, you've done the right things, John. You you you've developed a specialty. So I've never been like a general political writer. I don't think I've written a political column in my life because that's not my thing. Most journalists want to be political reporters. And to me, the idea of being on Parliament Hill, sticking a microphone in a politician's face along with 50 other people, fills me with horror. Yeah. I was much happier writing about technology even when nobody else was doing it. Mm -hmm. Ironically, tech became a pretty big beat after I left it and I started writing about money. Yeah, well, so did was the natural progression when you, just as a writer, to pick up on a topic and then you found interest in the conversation around money? Is, is that kind of how that unfolded? Because then, and then it turned into, I want to share my knowledge or I want to share these insights with people. How did that kind of, because you've been a huge contribution to many in terms of that financial literacy and, and financial education, was that an intentional path or did it just evolve? Was it kind of organic how it showed up? Probably the latter. I think uh, I couldn't claim to any, any any noble impulse to to help people mm -hmm. with their financial literacy at the beginning. It was sort of like, well, I got a job. You know, I'm at the Globe. I'm at the Post. And they, they, my, my motto was a story a day keeps the editor away. <laughs> and so That's great. I, I didn't I didn't want to be on general assignment where they go, go hey, you go cover that fire. Go yeah. cover that court. So yeah. I'd always give I always had stories in the hopper. Yeah. And uh, and since I was interested in tech, here's another tech story. I mean, I wrote about television 
Teladon. I don't, don't know if we, long before the internet with the globe, we were writing stories about Teladon, yeah. which was basically the same, same, similar sort of thing. And so gradually it did sort of evolve into, uh, I suddenly realized that people were not that financially literate. Like people, people find it boring for some reason, personal finance. They don't teach it in schools, which they should. And that was one reason for the novel, apart from what I already admitted that I wanted to be a novelist. Yeah. It was like, give them a, a story, sugarcoat the, the bitter pill of personal finance by having a story. In, in the case of Independence Day, if you don't know, it's set in sort of a, it starts on a reality TV television show like Donald Trump, The Apprentice. And it's, it, it's uh, the, this young couple, Jamie and Sheena are millennials. And Sheena has a serious credit card problem. They're in debt. Jamie just wants to be independent for whatever reason. And then you have a whole bunch of setbacks, which keeps you reading. So mm-hmm. that's sort of the formula of novel writing where you have a bunch of little mini goals and setbacks and the reader wants to keep on reading to see do the characters uh, achieve what they set out to achieve so that was where it all came from so in all your involvement jonathan with you know money matters and and the things that you see going on and the conversations the comments whatever it might be the interaction that you're having with the general public is there anything that consistently shows up for you in terms of the gap that you see within the education of people overall. Where I'm going with the question is, is that are there patterns that you're seeing of individuals who kind of are always a little behind the eight ball or patterns of those individuals that seem to be ahead of the eight ball, if you will? Are there gaps that you notice that you would see as a pattern? Yeah, I think I mean it's 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 spending. It's like the, the the one real concept in personal finance is living within your means. Mm-hmm. What was that the Dickens macabre saying? You know, twenty pounds a year income. If you if you have a little more, that's misery. If you have a little less and you have a surplus, that's joy. Uh, so to me, it's all about getting rid of debt and then building a surplus. The same behavior. So in the book, guerrilla frugality is like, like guerrilla marketing. Yep. Guerrilla frugality is the behavior. So you're ba- brown bagging it. You're making do with a used car. You're paying down your mortgage. You're not like spending your full head off eating out and drinking wine and beer seven days a week. I mean, yep. You have these two. You have the spenders and the savers, mm-hmm. and then there's also builders. You're probably a builder, um, and there's a fourth one. I can't remember what they were. So, um, so generally, couples, you know, they don't get to. If you have a spender and a saver, uh, not so good. So in in Independence Day, the couple Sheena, the woman, is a spender, and Jamie, the the, the guy, is a, a is a saver, and he's frustrated because he can't get can't get his wife to see the light. Like, stop spending money on you're not a male to Marcos. You you don't need a thousand pairs of shoes. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so that's the, the, the main thing, getting out of debt, developing guerrilla frugality so that you're cutting your spending to the point where you have a, a surplus. And that mm-hmm. surplus then has to be invested. The surplus should be 10 to 20% of your income. If, if you spend, if you make 100,000 a year and you spend 100,000 a year, you're broke. You're not yeah. going to get anywhere. Yeah. If you have, if you only spend ninety thousand, then you have ten thousand put in TFSA. What all that stuff, and uh, that's the beginning of wealth. So first, as is a saying in the book, uh, Didi, the TV host, says, "You can't climb the tower of wealth until you dig yourself out of the basement of debt." Mm-hmm. So true. You know, it's interesting though. As much as I'm entrepreneurial in spirit and have been for uh, thirty-seven years now, it's interesting to note that. 
my wife Stephanie and I have always always lived well below our means. And I mean, at one point for several years, we were just living off of my income and all of what she was doing, we were either investing or putting it away or whatever we were doing with it. But the point is, is that to me, that's the fundamental. That was always one of the things that we just did. Uh, it wasn't even like we had big, long discussions about it. Live below your means. So we didn't carry consumer debt ever. Uh, we were very uh, conscious of the way we spent money and what we spent money on. And, uh, you know, at the end of the, if we wanted, for me as an entrepreneur, it was like, if I wanted to improve my lifestyle, whatever that improve means to or meant to us at the time, it was I had to go figure out how to generate more revenue, not to say, okay, well, Stephanie, let's start using your income. Now, that all was just part of our own plan, but it was a very conscious thought process is my point to all of that. And, you know, I think I'm I'm curious from your view, this is my view of the world, Uh, you know, we're not that far apart in age. And, And so I wonder, Jonathan, as social media has picked up, you know, as that social peer pressure has increased given what's going on with the Facebooks and the Instagrams and the TikToks and all the other stuff that's out there. Do you think that's driving some of, I mean, to me, it's just driving a tremendous amount of consumerism and people trying to keep up with, you know, the neighbors kind of thing. What's your view of it? What do you see? I think social media, uh, actually, I feel sorry for young millennials because they got a lot more expenses that they regarded not as luxuries, but as necessities like internet access and cell phone. I mean, you can see the most poor person on the subway and they're still, they got a, Samsung or they got an iPhone. It's like, those things cost a lot of money. I mean, back when I bought one, it was like, this is a significant business expense, right? Mm -hmm. And then, and and so that, I I think they, I don't know, a lot of them like to eat out a lot and drink and and they want to start out life where we, you and I may have decided by 40, we want to have a paid for house and and, uh, maybe I'll get a brand new car every third or fourth year. But these, these people want to start you know, like they've got it made. They don't realize they're not at the finishing line. Mm-hmm. They're they're just at the starting line. I think it it, it is a bit tougher for them. Mm-hmm. And then social media as well. Also, they it's sort of like you see the, the how the other half lives. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it, I I, it, I think I've seen studies where people get depressed on Facebook because if they if they see all their friends of yeah. like in our, in Helen's case, for example, a lot of her kids for friends are now you know in their thirties, getting married, having kids buying sure. houses so if you're not there you feel like oh i'm a little bit behind mm-hmm. if, or, or take a look at uh, for the older group one of the most popular regular features in the national post in the globe and mail in money sense are the family finance features. i'm sure you read them right mm-hmm. and in, in ever, basically it's financial voyeurism people want to know am i ahead or behind these other people mm-hmm. so if they show somebody who's like broke or all they're going to have is a small pension you think oh well that makes me feel good if on the other hand they got multi multi millions uh then you think oh well i'm behind them mm-hmm. uh so uh i'm not sure where i'm going on that point but <laughs> well it's really about what's happening in the world today you know the social pressure because there is so much more uh social exposure if you will given what's happening and like i say given the platforms that are available for all of the announcements of all of the great moments in time that people are having. And, you know, I guess I've been in this space long enough to have met many, and I'm sure you have too, uh, very, very wealthy people, yet they are uh, as much money as they have. They're in the most messed up relationships or they're the unhappiest 
people that uh, I know. So I have to say that, you know, and, and I think it takes some time to figure that out, is that money isn't the answer. Uh, it's it's a part of an equation as we decide and what it is we want our life to be about and to look like. And, you know, is it another, you know, is it sh- as many shoes as Mel DeMarcos? You know, so these are things, but I think there is a lot of social pressure that uh, millennials are feeling. And I agree, by the way, I wouldn't want to be a millennial in today. There's no, I'm okay, I'm happy to be an old guy just doing my stuff. But, you know, uh, millennial uh, life is has uh, got to be very difficult given what's happening in that regard. And, and money is one of those things that uh, is probably challenging and you have to be built a certain way in order to overcome that social pressure. That's my view of it. That's my view of it. Yeah. And apart from high high um, real estate prices they're facing for their, just to get their first step on the housing ladder, uh, there's this whole... Now, I, I think it's always, it was always hard for young graduates to get a their first job. Jonathan, do you think it's relative, though? You know, back in, you know, back in the day when I, I bought my first house, I, I, I want to say I was making 50 grand a year. Something like that. I paid. Uh, that was good back in the day. I made a hundred. I was made. No, I paid a hundred thousand dollars for the house. But you know, back to what I was talking about earlier. You know, I was. You know, I was paying double digit interest uh, on that house as well. So you know, it's kind of it's all relative, or is it not? Maybe I'm full of shit. I don't know. I'm just kind of doing the math in my head. Just to carry a mortgage. I think what we a lot of these millennials don't think that they can get the job that they really mm. aspired to be. So they're sort of doing, what, what, what's the expression there? Uh, not moonlighting. What's the, the modern expression for side moonlighting? Uh, they're doing a side, side hustle. hustle. Yeah, yeah, sure. A gig economy, I think, is what it's referred to. Gig, yeah, exactly. And, 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 and which then leads to another concept from Independence Day and probably one you would espouse and probably preach, which is that of multiple streams of incomes. Mm-hmm. You you would talk in terms of multiple streams of door incomes, right? Mm-hmm. Just pure multiple real estate properties, one in Calgary, one in Toronto, a type duplex here and a triplex there. Sure. Very nice if you if you you were doing that. But even if you don't do that, it, it's nice. I mean, these days, uh, you know, the days of a defined benefit plan and staying at 40 years uh, with one employer is are, is pretty rare. And the millennials don't expect that that's going to happen to them. In fact, I tell, I, I said to Helen, you know, really, you should you should just go apply to the federal government, hang in there for 35 years, get their inflation index, taxpayer guarantee, defined benefit pension plan, and you'll never have to worry again. Mm-hmm. But then you have to actually do that work. So th- these kids are all cobbling. I, I know Helen's cousins. One of them has a T-shirt business on top of her day job, whatever the day job is. Yeah. And, and they all have two or three little gigs. Another friend is uh, – in fact, we, when we went to China, we got some green tea. And when we came back, we ran out of it. And it turned out Helen's friend is in the business of supplying uh, you know, green tea. <laughs> oh, so fantastic. We, so we, we ordered – yeah, so that, that that's good. So multiple streams of income, they're sort of forced to. Yeah. Those multiple streams don't all have to be employment or business incomes. They could, you can be employed and you can have a little business. Mm-hmm. And you should have investments and do RSPs and TFSAs and all that stuff. Yeah. And yes, you should try to get at least one. You would you would agree? Like you can't you can't have five investment properties if you don't buy the first one. Yeah. That's the big one. No, yeah. First, first, of, let's assume that everybody should get a paid for principal residence. Yeah. After that, it's a big step to get that first investment it property. Is. Personally, I wish I bought a, two, a duplex or a triplex in Toronto yeah. eight years ago, but I didn't. Yeah. 
Yeah, well, you know, at the end of the day, that's what happens, right, is we have to get through things. But it's interesting, you know, I'm I'm always encouraged by, you know, the millennials who are out there uh, hustling and uh, working their asses off and, and doing what they need to do to create those multiple streams. I think that is, in fact, the answer. You know, it's interesting is that my path was always around being an entrepreneur uh, personally. And, you know, as much as that's been great for me because I love what I do and I, I really love the businesses I've been involved in, which is really great because sometimes you're working for very little money. But along the way, we've done well, but the risks are also very high. So when I look at somebody like yourself who just methodically, you know, paid off a house, invested you know, wisely and did what you did to create that, you know, you, you also have, uh, you know, you've, you've got your independence and and you've not risked as much. So I've taken as much money as I've made, man. I've lost a ton of dough as well. So I'm on both sides of the equation. You know, the highs are high, the lows are low. And uh, having uh, multiple streams of income is what saved me. And real estate uh, has been a big part of that as well. So I think it comes hand in hand is that you're hedging your bet with whatever you do in terms of looking after yourself. And so for millennials who, in fact, can embrace you know, investing in real estate and or having a side hustle, you know, aside from their career. Uh, I think it's just smart. That's my own personal view, especially with what's going on in the world today. Yeah, I can't argue with any of that. I mean, Mm -hmm. I was going to talk about um, the permanent portfolio and Harry Brown. Yeah. And uh, what kind of portfolio do you... uh, so basically, it was he, he said you should have a quarter in your, in gold in case of superinflation, yeah. a quarter a quarter in bonds in case of deflation, mm-hmm. a quarter in stocks in cases in unlimited prosperity, and a quarter in cash if it's sort of uh, in recession. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, I think I would I would actually amend it to, and it's not just because I'm talking to you. Five twenty percent of which twenty percent is real estate, mm-hmm. uh, or at least REITs, real estate investment yeah. trust. Yeah, and I think somewhere along those lines, because the po- the point is nobody can predict the future, and it, and it, and people really get torn about should I be one hundred percent stocks? They said I should, but I don't have the risk. And if the market crashes fifty percent, you always have to be ready for the market to crash fifty percent at any moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you withstand it? So personally, I still we still have a lot of money in GICs. They pay nothing, one yeah. or two percent. Yeah. But I go, what if what if the stocks went to zero? Do you still have enough money just from the piddly little GIC one percent income? Mm-hmm. If you don't, you you, know, you got to look at your your risk your risk assessment. See, and that's an interesting, you know, so uh, several years ago, you know, because I don't just invest in real estate, you know, I've got stocks, I've got gold, I got silver, I got Bitcoin, I kind of do it all over the place. Because to me, having money in the bank just makes no sense. A GIC to me would never work. It's just like, nope, that doesn't work. I'm looking at where do I put money that I still have access to liquidity. And uh, several years ago, when I got into the stock market, you know, I, I started investing that taking capital cash putting it into what I believed were really safe stocks. I were they were all uh, they were all significant and they were all big players and they're all pretty safe. And and I happened to hit the timing right because I was uh, buying stocks when actually the U.S. and Canadian dollar were on par. So, you know, by the time that all the dust settled several years later, I'd picked up whatever was 30 percent just on the exchange. And uh, at some point, I guess I don't know if I consciously knew it, but I went you know, you're trading U.S. stocks on par, you know, how long are we going to stay on par? So I think somewhere in the back of my mind, I knew that, but it turned out to be a good move. Plus, the stock did very well. So my point is, is that for me, the strategy was get some cash that I had, but not tie it up in real estate, because real estate, as you know, 
is uh, it's tough to get liquid sometimes and uh, you can't always refinance you always you can't always sell in a hurry uh, nor do you necessarily want to so being in cash is a good position so jonathan let me ask you this question you know we've gone through the pandemic we're kind of coming out the other side i don't know that we're through it lots of people have opinions of that but when you look back into march 2020 and you see that stock market crash and you're a stock guy were you unsettled by it or were you kind of going, no, nope, this too shall pass? What was your kind of view of the world back then? We didn't make any knee-jerk huge changes in asset allocation. I think we, I may have sold a bit of non-taxable things where you had a gain. So yeah. you know, the Canadian bank stocks or something like that. If you look at your Royal Bank, it's up 30%. And uh, all of a sudden, you're not sure what's going to happen in mm -hmm. the economy. Why not at least sell half and be, sort of play with the house's money, that sort of thing. Yeah. But actually, I was lucky early on. I, was, uh, I started actually just around the March, April last year discovered Kathy Wood's ARC funds mm. through a, a through a particular newsletter who recommended it. And of course though not that I put all my money in it, but the money that did was like up a hundred percent. So, wow. and there was a lot of so as you know, twenty twenty turned out to be a great year for stock market. And millennials who sort of, the, yeah, the millennials who discovered things like Robinhood and, and basically low cost, low no commission trading, mm -hmm. uh, they recognized they were smart enough to recognize they'd been handed a, a historic low, and uh, from which they could really uh, make some money. Different for people of our vintage mm -hmm. because you know, you, you, it's one thing to say you're 20 years old and I can afford to take a flyer on uh, a Teladoc or totally. some yeah. stock like that. Yeah. Uh, quite another to take a flyer. In fact, I even I still take flyers. I've, I've got a piece coming up in Money Sense to that effect. Mm. Come on, core and explore. But I got I got hit on uh, Ridestown. It was it called Lordstown. You know, it's uh, the thing that one of those EV plays, and yeah. uh, it completely got shattered when they basically misled the investors. So uh, I still make mistakes and still lose money, but sure. it's all within a, you know. <laughs> like that, no more than a, like a one percent in any yeah, yeah, yeah. one yeah, yeah. position, like, which is normal common sense. But believe it, you know they say common sense ain't that common. So, so tell me, uh, let's let's talk a little bit about it. Uh, in from stock picks over the years, what's been some of your best picks? Anything that stand well, out? Have you like have you have you had a thousand bagger? Have you had a ten bagger? What anything that really stands out? Going, I was a genius. Yeah, well, no genius plays, but I mean, <laughs> you won't be surprised that, you know, Apple, Microsoft, yeah. all yeah. those plays. Yeah. I, say, I told you, I actually met the founders, so yeah. why wouldn't you? Uh, but not, not, it, but, but, but. But the problem is the same behavior that meant I didn't didn't lose my shirt on Lordstown yeah. is the same behavior that also meant I didn't make a killing on <laughs> Apple or Microsoft. Yeah, it's yeah. like you know five grand here, ten grand there, sort of thing. Yeah. Good risk management, and 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 then of course to me it's not just stocks, but it's stocks just one asset class. You also need bonds, gold, even. Like yourself, I even took a flyer on uh, Bitcoin and Ethereum mm -hmm. last fall, just mm -hmm. in time to get a nice up. And mm -hmm. of course, it's been down lately. Mm -hmm. But if you're a holder, it's a bit like real estate, isn't it? They call it H, hold on for dear life, H mm -hmm. holder. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so the idea is, first of all, on on cryptos, I, uh, you're a, you're a bigger risk taker than I am, Patrick. But uh, for me, I wouldn't invest more than between one and five percent in crypto. Mm -hmm. totally. The true, whereas I'll invest ten percent in gold. Uh, you could say that crypto is digital gold, and you should have, you, maybe you should take half of your gold position and put it into crypto. 
yeah. who knows? Yeah. It's um, it's a bit of a crapshoot, but um, well, you know, only because uh, we have some friends of our life in our life that are really kind of far off the grid, and you know, we were exposed to uh, Bitcoin in a different way several years ago. So we owned a little bit of uh, of uh, crypto that we. You know, I think we paid, I don't know, 800 bucks a coin or something for. But, you know, so we're, we're actually playing a lot with the house's money in that regard as well. And we don't go all in on anything. So, you know, I'm pretty conservative when it comes to that. And I just chip away at stuff. And and because it's to your point, all it is is, a, a you know, part of a backup plan. It's not a it's 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 really uh, for me. I haven't even defined it or, you know, as many people are trying to sell it, sell it as a store of value. I'm not convinced of that. Having said that, I, uh, in my world, it's not a, it's not a currency, and I, I'm a bigger believer in Ethereum. And that's you know I don't know that that's even true. Uh, I like the concept of Ethereum. I love what it stands for and and what it is in the space. And uh, so we'll see what happens in that regard. It's a it's new, uh, cutting edge stuff. I mean, God, the crypto, uh, the guys who are really into. Uh, Bitcoin or really into Ethereum. I mean, they're all in. I mean, it's crazy how fired up they are. And as many as are saying, get all in, there's just as many really credible people that are saying, you're crazy, you know, get the hell out. So, you know, you can't even get good guidance on it, to be honest with you, because both are really smart and they're polar opposites, as I'm sure you've discovered along the way as well. Well, you know, there's often a lot of luck. I don't know if you ever follow Jim Cramer, or Mad oh, Money. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I think he had said on on his show that he, I think he put a half million into the into into Bitcoin and yeah. Ethereum. Yeah. And around March, just in time, he he said he sold, or at least sold half, and he bought some farmland with it. You'd approve of that sort yeah. of real estate. Yeah. Uh, but he, he admits it's completely lucky. But mind you, if anybody listened to him, including me, I you you would have kind of booked some big gains instead of having having to settle for medium gains. But even then, you know. I go back to the well. I mean, like Coinbase, for example, is the you know, a, a recent IPO. The sort of a, the brokerage industry equivalent of, uh, of where you're going to buy all these uh, yeah. coins, initial coin offerings, and uh, that's a little bit underwater. But you know, this is a good example. So lot, some people decide not to play pure crypto, but to buy these kind of. It's sure. the old thing about uh, gold miners. You buy the picks and shovels instead of the gold to gold uh, mines. Yeah, you know, I think these are kind of, for me, these are my side hustles, you know, whether, you know, I think gold and silver in terms of, uh, you know, precious metals, uh, you know, to me, they're insurance policies, you know, they're not, you know, it's not currency and it's not an investment per se, silver more than gold, of course, but that's a different conversation. The thing about real estate that I like about real estate is that I understand it. I can see it. It, it, it really formulates this many years. It's really clear in my mind about the power of real estate, you know, and the power of leverage, the understanding of the economic fundamentals that drive real estate, you know, all of the things that we teach is so clear to me. And so those decisions are far easier. And but investing in real estate is not an easy thing. I mean, I can buy uh, an ETF of uh, precious metals, you know, or, or, you know, whatever commodity I happen to be interested in at the time. And I do that with a couple of clicks and I'm in the game. Uh, you know, getting into the game of owning a hard asset uh, directly means that I have to go to the bank and I have to get mortgages and I have to jump through all the hoops. It doesn't make it easy, but the upside is also worth the time, you know, and, and it's really, uh, to me, it's like uh, getting that, 
you know, getting that wheel turning, it's, you know, that flywheel turning, it's, it's a little heavy lifting to begin with, but once that flywheel gets turning, you know, it can uh, produce some pretty amazing results and it takes uh, a lot less effort than it did to get it going, if you know what I mean. So that's why I like real estate. It does make sense. But I also appreciate guys like you who really understand the game they're playing. And I, th and I think really at the end of the day, uh, maybe that's, you know, the conclusion that we can all come to, which is whatever the game you're going to play, understand the game and then get on the field and start playing the game. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've chosen clicks over bricks, to yeah. use your analogy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but really, you should have a bit of both. Yeah. So what's your thoughts? Let's talk a little bit about the economy. Uh, how much do you put into, do you pay attention to what's going on economically in terms of, uh, you know, the fact that we've got Bank of Canada, you know, printing whatever, you know, whatever that the term is going to be, given that they don't print really anymore. It's just all digital. But do you have any views of the world when we talk about, uh, you know, the, the fact that, you know, we're the dollar is potentially devaluing significantly, that globally we got fiat currencies that are flooding the market. Do you have a view of what's going on with that, Jonathan? Well, sure. I, I, I subscribe to all the normal publications in North America sure. and, uh, and, uh, it's the, it's the, the reason we are talking about cryptos and gold is because people don't have faith in fiat currencies and the fact that the governments just keep on mm -hmm. printing their fool hearts away. Yeah. I mean, if 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 individual households, you know, conducted their finances away, you know, <laughs> what's his name, Justin Trudeau, or yeah, what's or his even, name? Let's um, just leave it at that. Yeah, okay. Or, or even or, <laughs> or Biden or Trump. Yeah. Uh, you know, we, we all these households would be underwater, but uh, they they seem to think that as long as they keep it's it's called. I call it financial repression. You know, it's it's a sad, like you said, you don't invest in GICs, uh, and I certainly don't invest too much in them yeah. because a, a senior, someone my age, should be able to. I mean, the good old days, if you lent money, you'd get at least four or five or six percent. You yeah. can't get that, no. so you're forced to take risks you shouldn't really want to be taking. Mm -hmm. So, where's the economy going? I don't. I mean, we've sort of recovered from now that we're most of us are have had a vaccine once or twice. Twice. But right now, we're not out of the woods. I mean, look at just this week. We've got the the Delta variant of the of the yeah. of the, um, the coronavirus kind of spreading everywhere. Japan has decided not to. Uh, uh, hardly anybody can go to the Olympics. Yeah. I guess I guess it's all going to be a TV thing. Yeah. I mean, I, it'd be a mistake to say happy days are here again. I, I mean, look at that Florida game the other day in the, the Tampa. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are sixteen thousand people crowded. I didn't see a lot of masks. At least the Habs, yep. they only had 3,500 people. There's still some caution about social distancing. Yeah. I mean, if you remember Trump, when they had he, he opened up his rallies in Omaha, and which led to the death of Herman Cain, mm -hmm. uh, I, I, six months ago, if you saw a sporting event or something with, with a bunch of un socially distanced, unmasked people, you would cringe, right? You'd yeah. go like, oh, because you know what's happening. And now that we're starting to slip into that, I think it's a little bit premature personally it's like i you know get vaccinated just still use a mask at least indoors uh still consider social distancing mm -hmm. and uh it, it, for as far as your investments don't assume it's happy days are here again yet yet you know mm -hmm. just use the principles we talk multiple streams of income diversification asset allocation uh with a healthy dose of uh, of um caution yeah, you know, I, I think, you know, if uh, and if people are still listening at this point on the show, you know, I think that's just wisdom right there, because I agree with you. Uh, you know, I look at 
what's happening and there's lots of enthusiasm as you know things have opened up and uh you know people it's summer and there's uh you know there's just lots of optimism for what's going on which can open up wallets and kind of throw some caution to the wind and it's actually not the time you know we see some of the numbers and and recently uh, employment numbers uh, were put out there and 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 realizing that you know unemployment's still high and and uh, we're not generating full-time jobs uh, the tourism industry isn't back on track the airline industry isn't back on track which that in itself uh, really shuts down a lot of jobs a lot of uh, money from moving around you know uh, we need money velocity for it all work. Uh, I have certainly some concerns uh, about the economy going into the future. Now, interestingly enough, just back to what we were talking about, I think you know from a equity position, I think stocks. I think the, I think the governments, you know, the, the, you know, they're they're in a tough spot. They're going to continue to uh, print uh, print money. I think that real estate in Canada is still uh, uh, going to be one of those moves that uh, remains strong. Now, that's not to say there can't be another black swan event and things can't get thrown off, but the supply and demand issues is a real thing. Uh, interesting is that when we look at why there's a supply issue, uh, the, you know, I, I, I joke about it, but it's true, you know, which is that when the people who are creating the problem, hence our federal and municipal provincial governments, are actually the same people that are trying to solve the problem, we now have a problem. And the, that's the reality of what's going on. Uh, we look at the supply issue, and as much as people want to blame foreign investors or investors and those bad landlords, and those are the stories we hear on our side of it, you know, we need look no further than what's going on in the municipalities and in the provincial governments. And that is, what does it take to develop a piece of land in Canada? And uh, of 62 countries, you know, Canada's 61 in the length of time it takes from a purchase of a piece of property for a developer to put a building on it. It takes years. And uh, therein lies the problem. You know, supply, well, it's a big problem. Now, it's not the only problem, but it is a big part of it, which will then always limit supply. So the government's, you know, saying, well, we got all these problems and uh, supply's the issue and, you know, we're going to fix the problem. And it's always, they never own their role in the problem. And that is very frustrating for me, not only as a real estate investor, but from somebody who's looking at it from the outside, looking in, going, okay, is there's got to be other people seeing this. And I know there is, by the way. It just doesn't happen to be anybody in the bureaucracy of our governments. That's my rant. That's what I see. I can't, I, I can't add any value to that rant. <laughs> You've covered it off nicely. Uh, but, you know, the, the point of it is this, Jonathan, is that we look at what's going on economically. I think that you've hit it on. Uh, you know, when you look at your portfolio, are you keeping some, you know, what's your thoughts on keeping some cash on hand? Is is So you're not fully invested or uh, what's your view? Should people be keeping, if you're giving some guidance, uh, you know, so we talk about uh, stocks, bonds, uh, Bitcoin, whatever other, you know, but what about cash? Do you think cash, you, you need to keep that liquidity handy? Yeah, well, I, I have some bond ETFs. So I would say short-term bond ETFs from Vanguard or iShares or BMO. Mm -hmm. So under five years, because they could put up rates. They're saying, you know, made 2022, 2023. At some point, you figure, but we've been saying that for five years, the yeah. interest rates are going to go up. When yeah. interest rates go up, bonds go down. So I would have, keep some cash. I mean, again, on GICs, I would keep them to two years or less. Don't mm -hmm. you, you, It's not that you expect to get much of a return. There is no return. Um, but at least it's 
prevents a catastrophic uh, a collapse. You need some physical assets. We talked about real estate. A, here's my tip for the day. It's something called the Purpose Diversified Real Asset Fund. Okay. Notice that 20% is real estate. Yeah. So this is real assets. So physical, like most people don't have enough. Like I mentioned Jim Cramer and farmland. Yeah. So it's en energy and agriculture, real estate, precious metals, and base metals, all wow. physical stuff. Yeah. And, and further, each of those each of those segments is one third the commodity, like futures, commodities, and then two thirds equities or stocks. Mm -hmm. I think things like that, uh, real assets, is is one way that somebody like me, who, as I said, I'm I'm a, I'm a clicker, not a bricker. Yeah. Uh, so this way, I have some bricks. Yeah. Through my clicks. Yeah, <laughs> I love that. That's that's great. I'm really interested in that. I'm gonna I'm gonna dig a little deeper into that. Now, ETFs seem to be a um, I don't know. It's, they're becoming more popular. Uh, what's your what do you What's your view on that? Well, I was early on in the uh, in the ETF thing because the, the Wealthy Boomer forums that came out of the Wealthy Boomer book I wrote in 1998 mm -hmm. was basically they. I remember the, a thread they were talking about ETF. Essentially, we went from mutual funds to ETFs. I said I started my career post uh, writing about mutual funds, but and then it was called smart funds. At some point, I, I said, I think smart funds is kind of an oxymoron, like you know, like military intelligence or government worker, right? So mm -hmm. it was like what, it's not very smart to have. I mean, there are some good mutual funds, mm -hmm. like Mauer, for example, or even Steadyhand, but but if they're if they're way too high, if the, if the fees are like too Two percent, but basically MERs are ten. You know, two hundred and fifty percent is too much when you consider an ETF yeah. has a fee one tenth that, twenty five right. basis points right. instead of two hundred and fifty. Yeah. Uh, so to me, ETFs are the way to go. It could be as simple as the Vanguard or the iShares or BMO asset allocation ETFs, most of which are going to be some version of a pet for old guys like us. Mm -hmm or middle-aged guys like you uh <laughs> it's going to be some 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 variant of the classic pension fund more or less 50 percent stocks to 50 percent bonds on top of which we already discussed you might want to layer on a bit of gold and real assets and real estate and crypto mm -hmm. um but that's but but if all you really want is stocks and bonds and cash is 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 the main thing and yes you should always have cash we could go and have a long talk about emergency funds but yeah. but let's not yeah let's not go there i mean you know, as a as an entrepreneur, as a business owner, access to cash is is you know always always uh, foremost on my mind because things can go south in a really awkward way uh, far too often. Uh, given what you know, like I own my retail businesses in Edmonton, uh, thirty seven years, and uh, gosh, who would have thought a pandemic? Uh, you know, thirty seven years later, I would have to shut. One, I had to shut one of my locations down permanently. There was no way I could justify kicking that can down the road. Uh, not knowing what was going to happen in the space. So I'm in the world of sports and, you know, high-end hockey and figure skating and those kinds of things. And so I just didn't know how long the arenas were going to be closed. We didn't know have any idea, you know, uh, what the rec centers were going to do. And, uh, you know, in Alberta, the provincial government just shut all of that stuff down. You know, those are decisions as an entrepreneur we have to make. And, you know, to me, I was very frustrated by it all and, uh you know, I, I always looked at it. Here's my take on some of the decisions that government has made over the past year and a half, which is if there was consequences to the decisions that they made, uh, such as, you know, maybe uh, no paycheck, uh, perhaps, uh, 
you know, something that would uh, affect their indexed pension fund, uh, you know, or their indexed pensions, I think people would have made different decisions. But there are no consequences in government. That's another part of my rant that I get really frustrated with. But that's all to say, that's just my view of the world. I had to shut down one of my stores, which means that, you know, I laid people off. So those are the things that happen in business that, you know, guess what? You know, uh, I'm glad that I had the financial wherewithal to kind of see through it. And it was really challenging at times. You know, it's like people who uh, lost their jobs and are, you know, now back at work and maybe they're not as full time work. Maybe they're not making as much money. So having those uh, that those assets built up for those rainy days, as they say, I think it's just an important thing to to do for anybody. You're a business owner and a real estate investor. Mm -hmm. I mean, those are the two things. I mean, for me, I would never want to be an employer. I, I, I don't. I don't have a payroll. <laughs> never had one. I, yeah, yeah. I think real men meet payroll. Um, I, I have. I have suppliers. I have people in the network. I have a salesperson on my website. I have an IT guy. But these are all little contracts, and it's sort of we understand how much is a risk. But. None of them are employed in the classic sense. So I admire business owners who can take on employment and actually meet a payroll with multiple people. It's the same mentality which is required to invest in real estate. That's why you're you and I'm me. <laughs> well, speaking of you, because <laughs> this is speaking of you, because this is really about you. Uh, I, I want to know, like, let's as we start to kind of wind things down here a little bit, Jonathan. I want to know a little bit about you now. At this point in your life, uh, you know, uh, Fin Dependence Day has arrived and uh, you've uh, positioned yourself well, you and your family well. Um, but in behind all of that, of course, we, you know, it, it's not a joke. It's not even a cliche that really without health, there is no wealth. Uh, you uh, seem like a pretty healthy guy. You got great energy. Uh, so tell me uh, a little bit about uh you know, do you have a health practice? Do you work out in the morning? Do you go for walks? Is there something in your background that you focus on in terms of staying healthy? Because of the pandemic, mm -hmm. I, I, I joke with my wife, we got kicked out of yoga, yeah, yeah. got kicked out of our local gym, <laughs> and kicked out of hockey. The three. Yeah. And I just signed up for hockey yeah. this week, starting again in September. You had to be vaccinated. Yeah. Um, but So our, the backup plan has been mostly walking two hours a day. We look fortunate to live right within 30 seconds of Lake Ontario. Beautiful. So you either go east or west or long. And then I'll, I'll listen to uh, podcasts or listen to books on tape. Yeah. Uh, so I'm quite comfortable with that regime. Yeah. Uh, other than that, you know, I mean, we watch a lot of Netflix like everybody else with the yeah, odd yeah. sport thing. So some of the lifestyle, uh, let me let me plug one other book which sure. hasn't been visible. This I wrote with Michael Drack, Victory Lap Retirement. Yeah. That is basically, Independence Day is how to get to, to financial independence mm -hmm. because notice the, the subhead is Work while you play, play while you work, the joy of financial independence mm -hmm. at any age. And so that's basically the lifestyle. It's, it's, I call it the three-hour day. I mean, that's probably what I work on a good day. Yeah. Um, and I, I noticed in, in the National Post, uh, the day we did this recording, yeah. um, good catch, eh? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it was talking about, it was talking about the four hour, the the, the four hours. No, so the four day work week. Yeah. They were suggesting that the conservatives should embrace the four day, the four day work week as a way to appeal to millennials who've gotten a taste of semi freedom um, because of the pandemic and remote working, and now we've got the hybrid models and all right. that. So all that by way by of saying that um, for me, I'm in the victory lap. I'm enjoying it. Um, everything is good. You know, it's interesting that you talk, uh, Jonathan, about going for a walk. My mom, who is 93 years old, 
and uh, is still very vibrant. Uh, you know, she's got her aches and her pains and all the things that go on with being 93 years old. But the one thing that my mother always did was she walked. You know, as a kid growing up, you know, she would always go for walks, go for walks, go for walks. Uh, at 90, she was still going for walks. Uh, of course, COVID hit and then things really slowed down and, and she's uh, she still challenges herself to not use her walker. So my point about that all is this, is that, you know, I think that people, uh, could, if they could only understand that there's a huge difference between uh, being well and being fit. And just because somebody's fit does not make them well, but one of the keys to wellness is just activity. And if you do nothing else, and that's what I love to hear, that you just go for walks on a regular basis, uh, sounds like pretty long walks, those are awesome. And that's really what our bodies need just to be well. And it uh, doesn't mean you're overly fit and doesn't need to, you need to be any more fit than you are, but walking uh, makes you well. So that's cool. Congratulations on that discipline because it's really, really paramount to, uh, to remaining well and remaining healthy. I love it. Yeah, well, there's there's the Apple Watch, you know, 10,000 steps a day. Beautiful. Keeps track of this and that or, or a Fitbit. Yeah. Let me plug one last thing. Sure. Uh, I, I, I started a, um, a, a Facebook group called Younger Next Year 2021. It was really 2018 yeah. with, uh, Vic, uh, with Vicky um, Pirit-Jones in Rochester. We actually met. So because we're across the borders, we have, I don't know, something like 1,500 people. Wow. And we just exchange all these sort of uh, semi-retired boomer sort of people, health tips. And uh, and so we talked a lot about, you know, walking and uh, and the mal and how, how do you cope with gyms closed and this whole pandemic thing. So mm -hmm. it's free. So, you know, Younger Next Year 2021, uh, which is based on the book, a very good book called yeah. Younger Next Year, which I did not write. Uh, <laughs> well, that's, had, a, that's awesome. But it's a perfect segue into uh, winding down because, uh, you know, first off, Jonathan, thank you so much for uh, joining me today on the show. I, I, I really enjoy these conversations when it comes to understanding uh, how to create that financial future and, and investing and, and thought processes behind it. I think those are so valuable for many uh, and I know that there's lots of little things we talked about today that people will pick out on, pick up on. But when we talk about health and when we talk about books and uh, you being an author, I like to kind of wind things up with some rapid fire questions. Generally, they're not all that rapid fire, but let's give it a shot anyways. Do you have a favorite book that you read? Or one that you gift a lot, perhaps, other than your own? Apart from Younger Next Year and Independence Day. Actually, this is the book that most influenced me. I'd lost it. I only just came across it. It's called The Master Game oh. by Robert S. Robbins. This is an old, old book. I don't know if in the 60s. Yeah. And uh, I don't know. It talks about life games. I still remember this. I must have read it six times. Wow. Basically, there's the Master Game. There's the, the Householder Game. There's the uh, Hog and Trough, which is the, the, the basically the money game game there's the uh the fame game which is cock on dunghill yeah. and on and on and on. A profound influence on me beautiful now i was going to ask you iphone or android but you're obviously an iphone guy because you got the the watch so uh iphone's your uh your phone of choice well, Helen insisted. She also insisted <laughs> we buy Apple stock. So yeah, we're we're an all Apple family. I got uh, I got the iPad, the iPod, the iPhone. My team has is. forced me to. They've just ground away over the past few years, and uh, I, I still have one PC item in my life, and uh, everything else I've had to uh, slowly uh, give in to being on Apple or continue to be harassed, but that's okay. It's uh, I'm happy with Apple, so it's okay. What is a job that you still do even though you don't like it? Do you have one of those? 
I don't know, apart from waking up in the morning, <laughs> does that, that come to my, 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 my father talked about a walker. He was a famous walker. He, he would walk to school and people would uh, offer to, in the worst days of winter to pick him up and he would decline it. Anyway, he said, he said every day you should do something you don't like doing. And I, I, so he would have a cold shower. And I said, how about waking up? And sort of annoyed him. <laughs> Very good. Uh, a favorite inspirational quote? I probably have many, but I can't think of one right off the top yeah, of my head. I just pressure, man. Just put putting you under pressure. Do you have a favorite swear word? <laughs> I try not to swear when you do this kind of thing. Yeah, you're see, you're you're far better than I am. Gosh, you're just a better well. No, person but the me. more you're on TV, or radio, <laughs> and the internet, the more these words slip out. It's not really. I, I find certain words are, are overused. I, I really don't like TV shows where they have the F word or yeah, oh my yeah. god and all this sort of yeah. thing. So uh, I, I, I suppose if I hit my head, my thumb with a hammer, even the F word would slip out of me. But yeah, yeah. You won't get me to say it here. <laughs> Do you uh, have a favorite uh, tune? <laughs> so yeah, right now I, I really got I really like a Canadian group called um, what are they called the Strumbellas. Yeah, and uh, and I think the song I like in particular is called the Party. Beautiful, just very very catchy ear tune. So you know, if there's some Canadian content. So you're a Netflix guy. Favorite movie show up? Well, not just Netflix. I'm also Amazon Prime and even BritBox. Sure. Um, sorry, what was it? Favorite film? Did you say? Favorite, yeah, favorite movie. Do you favorite have one? movie. Well, yeah, many of them. I, I guess I, I like the sound of music. If it's really for, traditional, for old school. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, I, I just, just happened. I was watching a TV show last night where they, the show ended with people going a uh, sing along, sound of music. So it was in my head, you know. And there were yeah. <laughs> uh, there's many others. I think my wife loves Notting Hill, for example, or anything yeah. with Hugh Grant. Ah, there you go. Beautiful. And Jonathan, final question: What are you grateful for today? Well, I'm grateful that you would invest a whole hour of your time to uh, to help spread the word on on money and investing and lifestyles. So. Well, I'm a I'm a big fan. I'm grateful for you joining me on the show today and uh, connecting and because uh, we haven't talked for a long time. And uh, so it was really great to catch up and for you to share some of your wisdom. I am a, a, a fan, by the way, and I do creep your stuff. So I do pay attention to a little bit to what you got going on, by the way. Although it's uh, in a different world, I'm always into uh, new insights and gaining some uh, knowledge in that stock world. And, and also uh, some of the knowledge that you share is, is something that I can pass on. You, you know, there was um, something I read. It might have been one of your recent ones about uh, doubling debt, I think is the term. And I went... I'm not familiar with that term. And then I understood what it was when I investigated a little bit. It was just how it was the speed of debt. We talk about the velocity of money, but we could call it the velocity of debt when you look at the interest rates that are being paid on credit cards, et cetera. So did I capture that right? Yes, I think that was something I wrote on financial literacy a couple of weeks ago. Okay, I that's it, was what it, was. New phrase, it was a new phrase to me as well, but yeah. I did I did take note of it. I did I just something just thought of something when you asked me about music, and I realized I want to revise my favorite music okay. too. You can the Doors. The Doors. Oh yes. That's good. Because, Very good. Because I, because I never did get those Doors, but I still may. Yeah. Well, I, you know something. When people ask me these questions, it's what's in my memory, and I have such a shitty memory that. At what I used to have, I'm getting better every day, but no, that's my positive self-talk around that, is that uh, often uh, whatever, po I have lots of favorite movies and tunes and all the rest of it, but you know, my memory is like, no, nah, I can't, I can't pull it out of my hard drive at all on any given moment. So the doors though, 
Very good. So Jonathan, thanks again for being on the show. Very grateful for you for joining me. Uh, look forward to uh, keeping in touch, and I think I'll head over to that Facebook page and uh, see what's going on over there as well. So thank you very much, and uh, we'll talk again. I'm the administrator, again. so I, 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 I can let you in. Okay, in. you can let me in. Phew, do I, qual- I qualify, I hope, yeah. That's awesome. Well, yeah, thank barely, you. Barely, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's awesome. Thanks so much for your time today again, Jonathan. Thank you, Patrick. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. If you found value in the podcast, please take the time to rate and review and share with others. Share with your friends. As it is my goal to always improve and to provide the highest value for you, the listener, if you have any comments, suggestions, or questions you'd like answered, please email me at ceo at raincanada.com. That's ceo at reincanada.com. I look forward to hearing from you. And until next time, Patrick out.